Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. It's September 15th, and more importantly, it is Merge Day. And this is Off Chain, your weekly recap of the biggest stories in Web3. So I'm Matthew House Barbie, and I'm here as always with Austin Knight. How you doing, Austin? Merge day, Matt. It's an exciting <laughs> time. <laughs> what a day. I feel like we've been waiting for this forever. And there's a there's a part of me that so so for everyone listening, we recorded this a few hours before the merge has gone live. So we're kind of still living in this purgatory that we've kind of been in for several <laughs> years now of will the merge actually go live and will it be successful? I'm hoping that now being kind of the the time we've gone live, a couple of hours after the merge, hopefully everything is wonderful, rosy. I'm going to go on that assumption. And I think that would be a a great assumption for us to to have. (laughs) But I mean, in this episode, we're just talking and breaking down everything about the merge. So you're going to hear tons about this. We're going to do what we do best and try and break down all of the jargon, all of the unnecessary technical terminology, and just give you all of the information you need to understand what the merge is, the benefits are, what potential downsides are, and why this is important and what's going to change. So hopefully by the end of this, you're going to have everything you need to know uh, to either sound smart on Twitter or to hold up a conversation (laughs) with people about it. One of the two, both equally important, I imagine, in today's climate. So, (laughs) all right, we'll, uh, we'll jump into all things merge right after this. If you're struggling to get your head around the complexity of decentralized finance, I've something just for you. Decrypting DeFi is an online course where I walk you through all of the important concepts within DeFi and share step-by-step tutorials on how to start generating income from your crypto assets. Whether you're interested in this from an investment point of view or just want to better understand how things like yield farming, liquidity mining, and staking works, the course will have something for you head over to mhb.xyz forward slash DeFi to learn more. So what is the merge? Let's just break this down at the the, the most fundamental part. So the, the merge, it marks the shift from proof of work consensus to proof of stake consensus on the Ethereum blockchain. And this is a very, very significant shift. We're going to talk about some of the benefits uh, today, Austin, right? But, you know, the what's, what's worth calling out is Ethereum today is proof of work, similar to Bitcoin and many other blockchains. There are existing proof of stake blockchains that are out there, things like, off the top of my head, um, uh, Polkadot, for example, and, and a bunch of others. But Ethereum already has today, well, <laughs> we're, we're recording now so that you should hopefully be in a post-merge world, uh, but prior to the merge, it's had a proof-of-stake network, and that's been called the Beacon Change. That was uh, introduced in 2020. Um, it, it hasn't been used up until now for actually processing transactions. It's almost kind of been operating like a test net in many ways. Um, and the merge requires, uh, coincidentally, merging. The beacon chain, which we often refer to as like the consensus layer, with Ethereum's kind of mainnet um, proof of work. So that's that's known as the execution layer. So it 
it, it merges these two layers of the blockchain together. Um, now, the main technical change that comes with the merge centers really around how the decision is made of which miner can record the next block of transactions on the Ethereum blockchain and ultimately receive a reward in the process. If you want to have like a good primer around like how consensus systems work, how blockchains work, go all the way back to I think 2017 where we recorded our first series of uh, decrypting crypto and we do full explainers on all this. But ultimately, this is the most important part. So let let me just quickly break down the difference between proof of work and proof of stake, because it's important to understand this piece. With proof of work, miners compete to solve cryptographic and ultimately pointless puzzles. The miner with the most powerful hardware, plus a little bit of luck, will determine who solves the puzzle first, and ultimately then, who will win the, uh, the, the mining rewards. This is the same on Bitcoin. With proof of stake, validators that stake at least 32 EFA, so that's around about $51,000 um, with the network, are randomly selected in this case, to create blocks. Now, the more ether, I say randomly, right? But like the more ether the validator stakes, the more likely they are to be selected. And if a validator becomes a bad actor, they can have their stake of ether slashed by reduced. So the the things the thing that consensus mechanisms do and consensus systems in general look to solve is ultimately making attacks on the network economically unviable. So proof of work makes attacks economically unviable through the sheer cost of power required to um, overpower the network. Whereas with proof of stake, it makes these attacks economically unviable through the risk of capital. So let's, let's just break that down. Through the risk of capital being, if I want to um, increase my chances of winning rewards and more importantly, determining what goes into the next block on the blockchain and I want to be a bad actor, well, I need to significantly, um, I need to stake a significantly larger amount of ether into my validator. Well, if I am determined to be a bad actor, I could lose either some or all of that. So that makes that pretty challenging, but also the fact that I just have to have an enormous amount of ether makes it somewhat economically unviable. And on the, the other way around with proof of work, it's economically unviable because of the sheer amount of computational power you would need to have that much of a share of the network to do something like a 51% attack. It all kind of comes down on being incredibly cost prohibitive. Um, so that's what the merge is. What do, Austin, why don't we dig into like, what's the main benefit of the merge um, as, as we see it today. Yeah, so Matt, you were talking about the goal of either of these consensus mechanisms being to make an attack economically unviable, right? But the problem with proof of work is that in order to make an attack economically unviable, it's it requires a high cost of power, computational power, energy, whatever it may be. And then proof of stake just requires a high amount of capital. So with proof of work, what we've seen is that Ethereum's energy 
usage is really, really high. And we'll we'll dig into like what exactly those numbers are. But with proof of stake, it's still going to introduce a high risk uh, of um, economic unviability into the equation, but not at the cost of energy. So Ethereum's energy usage will reduce by, it looks like 99.95%. That's a lot of energy. Sounds pretty good to me. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, So the way to think about this is proof of work is high energy usage mining and proof of stake is low energy usage mining. But both of them have economically unviable deterrences built in. With proof of work, Ethereum consumed around 80 terawatts per hour of electricity per year. Uh, That's comparable to the entire nation of Chile. (laughs) <laughs> that's incredible. That's, that's a huge amount. <laughs> that is yes, just a lot. It, it really is. And so as you can imagine, <clears throat> that comes with a large carbon footprint. It's mm. about 44, 40 high, 45 megatons, uh, which is 1 million metric tons, uh, which is comparable to that of Hong Kong. Uh, and that's just Ethereum's annual carbon footprint. So we're talking about like entire city states. Um, that Ethereum is is responsible for in terms of carbon footprint. With proof of stake, some estimates have consumption coming down to around 10 gigawatt hours or one hundredth of a terawatt hour, which is roughly equivalent to 910 U.S. homes per year. So it's the way energy... Less. Yes, exactly. The expenditure of Ethereum is basically going to be roughly equal to the cost of running a modest laptop for each node on the network. It's a huge reduction in energy cost and carbon output while maintaining that economically unviable deterrence. Well, how, so, how does that how does that compare to something like Bitcoin? Because I know Bitcoin is obviously enormous amounts. I don't know if we have the numbers on that. Yeah. So you hear about Bitcoin all the time in the news, especially with regulators. We've talked about it over and over and over again on this podcast, coming under scrutiny for its energy consumption and carbon output. And it is it is true. Bitcoin consumes around 200 terawatt hours of energy. And, and if you recall, we we're talking about Ethereum under proof of work consuming around 80 terawatts of energy. So we're talking about more than double the amount of energy per year mm. is consumed by Bitcoin. And it emits around 100 megatons of CO2 per year as again, which is roughly more than double of of (laughs) Ethereum's. Um, And it also generates around 32,000 tons of electrical waste from obsolete hardware every year. That is unbelievable, isn't it? It's just a huge amount. And I imagine how much like, especially during kind of like some of the early like ASIC mining wars, I bet that turnover was horrendously large um so yeah it's a lot it's a lot it is in fact it actually puts bitcoin around the same level of energy consumption as the nation of thailand which is uh that's the 23rd largest energy consumer not as a as a by you know way of a nation um in the world so 23rd largest country uh, in terms of energy consumption in the world is Thailand. And that's right around where where Bitcoin is. And I recall years and years ago, Matt, talking about how, you know, Bitcoin was just moving up the ranks. Like, I think at one point yeah. it was comparable to Ireland. And Ireland, anyway, yeah. um, 
Yeah. It's wild. It's just, so, it's so- increased and increased, hasn't it? it? Well, I think this, this also, you know, like, I'm sure we're going to discuss this a little bit, but with the merge in Ethereum, it shows that you can overnight shift away from being an enormous carbon emitter, an enormous energy consumer to basically like in Ethereum's case, wiping out the country of Chile in in <laughs> energy usage overnight. It's an unbelievable thing to think about really, isn't it? And it and that is. can happen. I think we're going to see a lot more scrutiny put on Bitcoin uh, as, a, as a result of this now. Yeah, I think you're <clears> right. Um, but, you know, there, there are more benefits to the merge beyond the energy consumption, right? Definitely. So I, something <clears throat> I think for me, the energy piece is is critical for to be honest i think the the like the the crypto space as a whole to have a long term future i think whether that future is a bright future or a dark future is a is, is a different discussion i think unless the energy crisis can be solved there is no future is my my take and i think this the merge is what gets us to that um <clears throat> so but outside of that there is an another outstanding like benefit that the merge brings and is is incredibly important when we think about ether as a as an asset class and this all really kind of focuses on the economics um and in particular surrounding issuance on ethereum which is going to get dramatically better and I'm going to I'm going to try and like break this down in in really simple terms here so everyone can understand. But but I think to understand this you need to understand the two forces at play here. And you've got <clears throat> so with any token you you have on one side issuance which is kind of the the process of creating or like printing or minting eth um, that did not previously exist in the same way that central banks will print USD, will print uh, euros, etc., etc. And then you have burning, which is when existing ETH gets destroyed and is removed from circulation. So, you know, the, the ratio of issuance to burning is ultimately what balances supply and demand, uh, certainly in like the ETH economy, and is ultimately what dictates whether Ether is inflationary or deflationary. Right now, Ethereum prints much more new ETH, um, so through issuance, than it burns, which means it's still very much inflationary. I think um, prior to the merge, I think it was inflationary by somewhere in the region of just under 2%, maybe one5 Five. Uh, don't quote me on the exact amount, but it was in and around between the one to two percent mark. Um, that was actually much greater um, prior to the EIP one five five nine update, also known as the London update. Uh, represent London uh, from August <laughs> last year, um, which which actually probably introduced one of the most significant upgrades in terms of burning and uh, reducing the supply of ETH, where with every new transaction, a portion of those transaction fees were actually burned. Um, so every time a transaction was carried out, a portion of like the ETH 
that was uh, going to be allocated towards transaction fees, which would previously have just gone straight into the pockets of miners, was actually completely removed from circulation. Really important, that piece. And actually, if you look um, at the, the amount of ETH that's been burned since the London upgrade in August last year, it's been around about $5 billion worth of ETH that's been burned purely since then, which is incredible. Now, the merge isn't going to impact burning of tokens in in any way. However, it's going to dramatically reduce issuance, which will bring the issuance uh, issuance to burn ratio uh, close to one to one, and in some cases potentially even lower, um, which would actually mean that ETH would become net deflationary. Uh, so let, let's let's just let me just break down exactly how it will change. Let's start with like pre-merge. So the the two big areas of issuance are mining rewards and then staking rewards. So pre-merge, mining rewards emitted around about 13,000 ETH per day. And then through staking rewards, there was around 1,600 ETH per day. So all in, pre-merge, around 14,600 ETH emitted per day. And um, in post-merge, all of those mining rewards, that 13,000 will no longer be emitted. So you will have like the, the issuance of ETH will dramatically fall by around 90%. So you'll only have 1,600 ETH being issued, new ETH per day. That is such a substantial amount. So when you then factor in the burn, right? Let's say an average gas price of around 16 guay, which is still like relatively low in the grand scheme of like what ETH has been before. At least 1,600 ETH is actually burned every day, which brings, which effectively brings like net ETH inflation to zero or less post-merge. So, so why is this good? Well, when it comes to pricing a token, having a deflationary supply would, if we look at this purely in isolation of other macro, et cetera, put upward pressure on price, i.e. number go up, right? That, that's a good thing. That's a good thing for ETH. That is incredibly bullish for ETH long-term and for the, the overall economic model. So when we combine these like environmental benefits with the economic benefits, there's a lot to be really excited about with the merge. I will say... I think this is something that we should we should dig into our snatches. Like there's also a lot of misinformation around like the things that are gonna happen post-merge and like some of the benefits. There's a lot of talk about like gas fees, things like that. So why don't we just like cover off like what won't get better like immediately after the merge? Yeah, you're you're right, Matt. I think there is a lot of misconception around what exactly are the benefits of the merge and then what the merge will or will not be addressing. So just to be clear, the merge won't in and of itself improve transaction throughput or scalability, but it will pave the way for future upgrades like the implementation of sharding, um, which will eventually do that. So you, you may hear you know folks refer to the merge uh, as, as part of the plan to improve transaction throughput scalability, maybe put, um, you know, downward pressure on gas fees and everything like that. Uh, but the merge itself is not what does that. It's just a step along that path. So there's, as of right now, there's no expectation that gas fees will be lower 
post merge just because yeah. it's not it's not part of uh, what the merge is addressing. The main solution for transaction fee lowering is probably going to be through rollups. And yep. just in case you're not familiar with what rollups are, um, Ethereum rollups basically cut down on transaction costs by rolling up a bunch of transactions into one. Um, so you may have heard of the likes of Arbitrum and Optimism, they're, they're good examples of services that do this. And th they're likely to be where most transactions will be processed and then rolled up onto the main Ethereum chain. And that's where you're going to start to see um, opportunities with, with regards to gas fees. Also, this, this is Ethereum one of the reasons why, you know, we, we talked last week actually about Arbitrum and then like Nitro upgrade and getting ready for the merge. Th this is one of the reasons why I'm like, very positive about the likes of Arbitrum and Co because I think this paves the way to them really starting to provide serious value at scale to the Ethereum ecosystem. Yeah, it's it's exciting. Um, on top of that, Ethereum transaction speeds probably aren't likely to increase much after the merge. If anything, it may be by like a single second. So so nothing notable in yeah. the grand scheme of things. And again. Rollups will be the thing that helps to solve this. So that's what I would be paying attention to in terms of these sort of knock-on effects down the road related to throughput scalability transaction fees, um, as opposed to the merge itself facilitating this. Yeah. So, well, one of the things we should chat about as well is like staked ETH. Um, because I know that's something that, you know, we, we talked about this before, um, I think through services like Lido or rocket pool, things like that, because there's a lot of discussion about this. So as, as a quick reminder, you know, there's been the, the opportunity to stake ETH. Um, so I mentioned that the beacon chain has been running since 2020 since then, um, anyone has been able to actually set up an ETH validator node on the new proof of stake chain and start earning uh, validator rewards. So been able to earn rewards, ultimately at a lower rate than post-merge. But for those of you that either don't have 32 ETH uh, to run a validator, or you just don't want all of the technical hassle of running a validator, that, that was definitely me. Um, I didn't want to have to manage all of that. Um, you could use a platform like Lido where you would stake and lock up your your ETH um, and in exchange get like one of their staked ETH tokens and they would run the validators and you get a share of the rewards. Well, so Ethereum validators obviously have been and will continue to accrue staking rewards uh, on their, their staked ETH. It's actually worth noting that ETH staking rewards will increase post-merge. It's actually likely to increase the current APR by around about 50%. So that's that's nice. Um, <clears throat> but they won't be able to withdraw the any of their staked ETH until six to 12 months after the merge. And, th and this applies to the likes of Lido, uh, which I think is the largest uh, staking platform by far. Um, Rocket Pool, et cetera. I think Coinbase have their own one now. So, so if you have staked ETH, you won't actually be able to redeem this ETH plus your rewards until six to 12 months after the merge. At that point, you can go into Lido and you get a one-to-one -one redemption. Um, technically, you can still trade staked ETH on the secondary market through 
um, a dex like curve or uniswap whatever however stake teeth at least currently and i think probably until the the uh, this upgrade happens trades at a discount of around about two to three percent so you'd actually be making a loss and you'd lose out on any of your rewards if you just simply traded on the open market so i think that's worth noting my take on this is that when this six to 12 month like period uh, elapses and kind of the 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 validators are able to withdraw their ETH, my take take this as like not financial advice i expect a flood of sell pressure to hit the market. I think especially if the wider macro is still bad, which I think it will be. It seems like, you know, the the war that Russia has been um, raging on Ukraine is highly unlikely to have finished by then. Um, I think that inflation, I mean, we've just had Austin, what, a couple of days ago, um, new inflation figures, much higher than what we were expecting. Seems that that's going to mean the central banks around the world are going to continue to be hawkish. You can't imagine that easing up for at least nine, 12 months. So with all of that in mind, and everyone having kind of their their ETH locked up for for this time, uh, I imagine people will want to get liquid. So I think there's going to be a bit of a turbulent time around that. Still makes me kind of bullish ETH long-term, just something something worth worth knowing. So that's just like, I just wanted to like cover that piece at least on the stake teeth because I know that a lot of people have have questions on that front. Um, what Something else people have questions around is just like, do, do they need to do anything <laughs> post-merge? Uh, <laughs> it's probably worth us digging into that. Yeah, it's a really good question. And the answer is not really. No action is going to be required from you if you're an ETH holder post-merge, your ETH will transition to the new proof-of-stake chain just fine. Um, One thing, however, that's likely going to happen is there will probably be some fork chains that maintain proof-of-work as their consensus mechanism. Um, and, And that would be similar to what happened for example, with Bitcoin Cash during the Bitcoin fork back in 2017, there's always going to be a constituency that, um, you know, w- wants to keep things the way that they were before. It sounds like uh, ETH proof of work isn't going to gain too much traction, but you'll likely get a small amount of free uh, ETH proof of work. Uh, on free money. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, on the old chain, if you held ETH in your wallet during the merge. So yeah, nothing that you really need to do if you're an ETH holder that is uh, ready to move over to the proof of stake chain, that's going to happen just fine. But if you want to participate in potential proof of work fork chains, that's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how much support that actually gets, because it looks like most of the major exchanges have said they're not going to support. Yeah the the proof of work and i think i I heard a lot of like good arguments in general like around like you know um why not just move to eth classic if that's the case right you know like there's already that that exists um Mm -hmm. i mean i still i'm not pro eth classic uh to be honest it's just I, i think we should just have this transition and make it nice uh make it a straight switch but you know, um, there, there will definitely be a community as we've seen with things like Bcash and, oh God, I remember in 2017, what was it, like Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin Diamond. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, probably still uh. kicking around in a wallet I own somewhere. Um, 
But but yeah, so right, let's talk about what happens after the merge because this is kind of another kind of piece in all this. The merge really is just the first of five stages of upgrades to the Ethereum blockchain, at least that have been um, laid out right now. And I like these have been grouped into uh, these like five buckets. Um, So we had the the merge, which is obviously the um, the merging of the beacon chain uh, into the execution layer of ETH proof of work. <clears throat> the next stage, so so I'm just going to list these out and I'll explain what each one of them are because I just appreciate the uh, uh, at least alliteration <laughs> from the, the, the Ethereum Foundation here. So you've got like the merge, the surge, the verge, the purge, and the splurge. Um, so very nicely named, uh, I'm sure. So the surge, let's start with this one. And let's try and just uh, simplify this down a little bit. This phase is what will bring sharding to the protocol. Another wonderful name. Um, but you know, I, I, this is particularly important. And um, we don't have exact timelines for all of these, but they are dependent upon one another. This is ultimately a scaling solution that's going to break up the Ethereum network into separate partitions, which will be known as shards. And it's, it's kind of designed to just spread the computational load across all of the network. This is the piece that's going to be really important for scalability. Then we have the verge, and this is the introduction of what are being kind of almost colloquially called Verkle trees. It involves an upgrade to Merkle proofs, um, and we're not going to get into the technical detail around this, but it's all focused on optimizing data storage for all of the, the nodes on the Ethereum network. Then you have the purge, which is somewhat related to kind of like what the verge is doing, uh, all focused around data storage again, but for validators. Um, it's just going to reduce the storage capacity, so like the hard drive space that validators need to have to run continuously. So it just reduces network congestion. Again, good for throughput, scalability. And the final piece is the splurge. And this is the last upgrade in the pipeline. It's really just a whole host of, I, I don't think random is the right word, maybe miscellaneous, um, like updates that are going to be used to just ensure the Ethereum network runs smoothly over the long term. I imagine that a bunch of upgrades uh, and updates and fixes and things like that will all be bundled into the splurge. Wouldn't surprise me if there's additional stages and phases after this. As time goes on, they learn more about this. But those are the five stages. So still, we're at the beginning uh, of this. I think this is an important one, the most important milestone right now. So that was a lot of information. Why don't we why don't we just have a little bit of a discussion around this, Austin? Mm-hmm. So I I want to kind of talk uh, and, and put to you a couple of questions to to begin with. I think the one that I actually want to start with, you know, the merge, it addresses a lot of things. But the thing it still doesn't really address is the issue of decentralization and governance. Now, like proof, proof of stake, it means that ultimately those with the deepest pockets have the largest say in the future of the network and benefit the most from it. Is this is this acceptable long term, I guess? You know, proof of work ultimately is pretty much the same issue. You could argue proof of stake is 
just as bad, if not worse, at this. Um, do you think this is something that we 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 can and should live with? Because it feels uh, like the antithesis of what blockchain technology is all about. Yeah, I I've, I will say like this is probably the top thing on my mind um, in terms of you know maybe detractors um, to to proof of stake at least on the surface level. I think you know the likes of Lido etc. Um, will you know help folks that don't have 32 ETH that they're ready to stake to still be involved um, in, you know, in the network. Uh, Because I think that the initial reaction that you may have is like, wow, that's a ton, like $51,000 worth of ETH to stake as like just the sort of price of entry. And then, you know, to increase your odds, you're going to have to stake more. That's kind of scary. Like, doesn't that mean that basically only, you know, whales or whale like whale porpoises what what would they be matt <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is probably right it's like mollusks uh, uh <laughs> yeah. so yeah it's uh it's, what, it's tricky what will us uh us mere sea sponges do <laughs> i know yeah i think i'm like a sea um, cucumber at that point so yeah <laughs> yeah so but so I, and i think that that is um that's part of what kind of proof of work proponents kind of counter the 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 proof of work a uh, proof of staking uh with is that you know theoretically like this kind of limits the uh the pool of people that can participate on the network but because of rollups and and uh you know services like Lido where you can pool together um i i think that 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 problem might be a, a little bit exaggerated especially because you know if you think about it with proof of work like you have to buy huge computational power as well um there's always a a price to entry and then there's a uh, services that pop up to kind of, you know, split that up amongst a, a group of people that want to pool their money in and participate. Yeah. Nevertheless, um, you know, something that you do here is that uh, this this does come with its own centralization and security risks, and it could potentially make it possible for malicious actors to directly buy control of the network. And I know that that would be like an unimaginable amount of ETH, but we've seen huge amounts of money thrown around over the years with, you know, whale wallets or like multiple whales all of a sudden coming together at once. Um, so it is worth considering, right? Yeah. Can we stake the uh, uh, three hours capital super yacht and uh, see how far that gets us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, my, so I think it's important uh, call outs, right? My, my concern is less about, you know, will, will this increase the likelihood of, um, malicious attacks being possible i kind of think it will end up getting to the same level of economic inviability as proof of work um and i still think it'll become unviable like you know it it all really the most critical time is going to be during the merge in in fairness around that as as we transition over but i'm less concerned about that what i do think is so anyone can run a node on the network without kind of being like a full validator at like 32 ETH. And that's where you kind of just use laptop. However, you, it, all of the power of decision-making is centralized in these validators. And that's to your point, you know, if you're, if you're running a, a validator, you have a say over the network, you control huge amounts more of the network. And I think just the fact that it's just so much more directly tied to capital just makes it 
feel more like a capitalist. Well, I mean, it doesn't make it feel more. It's like it's just so much more in your face that it's capitalist-driven kind of network and approach to governance. What I think needs to happen is, because I, I don't think there's been any good solutions put forward that ultimately don't mean, you know, to safeguard the network, it needs to create economic inviability in being a bad actor. What that means, though, is being a good actor requires like economic power. So, you know, there's there's the there's the the dichotomy there. I think what we need to do a better job of is spreading and um kind of I'm trying to find the the right kind of term, but like basically spreading out the voting power, democratizing voting so that it's not just scaling with resources and capital. I think there needs to be a cap on the the amount of like power and control that any like one entity or group of entities can control in the network. I saw some interesting stuff uh, from um, Vitalik where I think he's been thinking about stuff around like things like governance where, you know, instead of just, you know, the more uh, capital you have staked in a, in a in a chain, the more voting power you get. You could do things like uh, square rooting the amount and just like like smoothing that out and leveling it out. I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in governance long term to make this better. I just don't think there's good alternatives that solve this at like the consensus layer. I think you know once we've shifted to proof of stake, I don't think we can really. Well, I mean, let's never say never, but I can't see us truly drastically changing that. But it does mean that we can change and build new models on top of it um, around governance. Um, so I think that's something that's really, really important. Take, taking a different view of this, does this put, you know, if we think about the energy piece, you know, we're talking a lot here about like governance, the uh, capital efficiency and things like that. We just talked about, what was it that you said, Austin, 99.95% reduction yeah. in energy and uh, carbon emissions. Does this put more pressure on Bitcoin to transition to proof of stake or a another energy efficient consensus mechanism in the future? I know there's most, not to generalize, but most Bitcoin maximalists are very anti the shift from proof of work. Do, do we think there's going to be a lot more pressure there? I think kind of naturally, yes. Um, but there is a bit of a caveat there and, and also maybe one of the detractors as well to the merge, which is that proof of stake still is a less battle tested system than proof yeah. of work, which has, of course, over the course of years, decades um, or decade proven to be hmm. resilient, you know, as the backbone of these two largest blockchain networks, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And this move to proof of stake is somewhat risky in that respect, in that this is by far far in a way, the largest network to attempt and test something like this. But also, if it works, which I think I, I could say that, Matt, you and I have a feeling that it will, um, or mm. at minimum that it was at least necessary, uh, to your yep. point, for the long-term survival of the networks, um, then it's it's going to be you know kind of the elephant in the room i think um that one network the second largest network was able to reduce its energy consumption and improve its economic incentives and a whole host of other things that we discussed uh through making this shift while the other network <laughs> 
kind of, you know, continues to use the amount of power that's equivalent to that of the nation of Thailand and everything like that. Um, So, yes, I I, I think that we don't know today uh, whether that is going to be the case. But if this does play out the way that it's intended to, I don't see any way that it doesn't put some pressure on Bitcoin to transfer or transition to a more energy efficient consensus mechanism in the future, especially considering all of the the pressure and scrutiny that's already been placed on that. Like that's already, you know, what, what, like the top within the top three themes um, mm. that, that you hear in the media and Congress, et cetera, about Bitcoin. It's like, uh, you know, economic pumps, people making money, people losing money, um, regulatory scrutiny and, uh, uh, you know, around like how how governance is, is handled and like risk and everything like that. And then you hear about like uh, energy consumption and, and carbon footprint and everything like that. So it, it feels to me like, yeah, this is going to put some pressure on. And certainly from like an institutional investor perspective with so much of a focus on like ESG, uh, like in green investing, which I mean, okay, there's lots of lots of things that you can dig into to that whole sector in, in general. But um, I think like when uh, large institutional investors want to gain exposure to crypto, you know, largely the choice right now is Bitcoin or ETH. And when you have one that ticks kind of all of the boxes on the, the green side of things, I think it does put Ethereum in a very strong position long term. I also think that if sentiment dramatically um, turns negative around proof of work staking, which I think, um, uh, but proof of work consensus, which I think it already somewhat is, but the fact that we haven't had a major network like transition um, into like a better model in proof of stake, it's had slightly less of a fire under it. We already saw China completely ban proof of work mining. If other governments around the world in particular, the US seeked out to do, and I'm not saying this will happen, but who knows what will happen over the next kind of five to 10 years, a kind of federal wide ban on that, especially as we think about the climate crisis, that could really put a strain on the Bitcoin network. Uh, regardless of what I think like Bitcoin Maximus say, I, I agree that yeah, mining will shift around or go different places, but it can only keep shifting around to a point where it becomes tougher and tougher. And more importantly, I think even if there's a point where, you know, the network um, hash rate doesn't really degrade, there's still needs to be enormous demand for the asset. And I really just don't know what's going to happen with ETH um, kind of now being an energy efficient uh, solution or asset whether that can drastically change sentiment. It's hard to hard to say. Climate crisis is only going to get worse and in particular, very worse. So it's hard to see. But I think the big question from a lot of people from an investment perspective, this for me is the, the first moment where I could see where I've never really seen this as a path forward before. Um, I've always been very pro-Bitcoin and still, still am. But I think this is the first stepping stone towards actually... ETH potentially flipping Bitcoin in uh, in in the future. I don't think it's going to happen in the near term. I think we're probably, if it's going to happen, it's probably a couple of cycles away. But I do think long term, this could happen. It's an interesting thought. I, 
I feel like there is such a powerful, call it brand presence or awareness that Bitcoin has in sort of the general mainstream psyche that mm. Ethereum just does not quite have and maybe feels, you know, like this, what, like, what is a smart contract? What is, you know, all, yeah. all of these additional sort of layers of complexity that maybe, um, even though in, in reality, it's not a less friendly uh, cryptocurrency, you know, m makes it feel like, okay, there's an additional learning curve. It's something I've heard about less. And, you know, we see all of the surveys around like, um, basically adoption of cryptocurrency and its direct correlation to awareness, like how many times you've heard the word Bitcoin versus how many times you've heard the word Ethereum versus, you know, how many times you've seen it used and um, things like that. Th that I think would be like a big hurdle for Ethereum to overcome beyond, you know, any of the technical foundations. But to your point, the technical foundation is kind of the foundation through which that, that uh, gets put into motion. You know, so if it were to happen, I agree with you, Matt, the merge is a, is a significant factor. And perhaps that sort of first major push um, in that direction, I feel like it would take some time. Um, yeah. And just just looking at like historical precedent of tech and currencies and, and you know, whatever it may be. Um, I mean, it, you know, Bitcoin to me feels like a dot com domain, right? Like, you know, you mm -hmm. have. Uh, you have tons, tons of other uh, top level domains that have gotten, you know, a lot of traction and maybe have even like, it's like, oh, this is really trendy. Like in some ways it has eclipsed a dot com uh, TLD, but still like dot com is the original. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess that, you know, you, you could, you know, liken it to other things like a shift from holding physical gold to holding paper money to holding a credit card. <laughs> um, yeah, so. I, I, I agree. And I, I think like, you know, I, I really, I definitely agree with that. I think that Bitcoin is still the backbone of the crypto space. Bitcoin dies. Um, you know, that's a, that's a really bad thing for the whole kind of space. I think like where Ethereum's moving to, I think it's one of the first, if you asked me in 2017, like what happens if Bitcoin dies, I say that everything dies. If you ask me today, mm -hmm. like post merge, everything going well, I'm not so sure if that's the case. Um, so, and just to be clear, I don't think Bitcoin dies. Uh, and and I definitely hope that doesn't happen. But <clears throat> yeah, I think over a long enough time horizon, ETH is setting itself up the right narrative. I think actually all of the points you made are probably the points I'm making as an argument in for Ethereum potentially moving ahead of Bitcoin in the fact that I think it's just going to be much cleaner to discuss in the mainstream narrative Ethereum, right. I think. I, like regardless of what happens long term uh, there's one thing that i'm almost certain of is in the next cycle it's going to be all about eth everything is going to be the discussion mm -hmm. is it going to be dominated by eth and and i mean that kind of happened in this past cycle but i think it's going to get a huge amount of traction i think bitcoin's likely going to do well as well but i think eth is going to dominate the headlines um do i think like the ETH merge is going to be really bullish in the short term? Probably not because, you know, the macro is just so bad. And right. as much as you you want the ETH to 
cut through that for all the things that we were just talking about, interest rates soaring, energy crisis, which is only going to get worse. Um, I think most analysts in the equity markets are predicting that, you know, we're nowhere near a bottom, the the S&P 500 needs to probably drop down to like a 30% uh, decline from its peak before we actually see a bottom. We're still a way to go on that. Okay, in Europe, we're close to that, but it's mainly because of the, 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 the strength of the dollar. But there's just so much that's happening. We still haven't seen a housing market crash, right? So I just think there's going to be long-term, a lot of benefits here. Short term, lot to be happy about on the tech side. Anything that's like a a rally is going to be a bonus, and I'll be enjoying that if so. But outside of that, I think we're all just really happy that this is happening. It's finally arrived, and we can be really positive moving forward. Um, and I think on that note, we'll wrap things up. Hopefully, this has given everyone a really strong understanding of the merge. If you have any questions, you can always hit us up on Twitter um, and we'll be sharing out uh, a bunch of different like uh, links and stuff that's like useful information on Twitter when we tweet out about it. All right, Austin, it's been a pleasure all talking all things merge. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, because I think we have to skip next week's episode, but the one following that will be talking about how wonderful it is living in a post-merge world. And I will see you then. Looking forward to it, Matt. Talk to you later. Contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.